This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Well, happy Mother's Day to you. We are going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're actually going to talk about Ecclesiastes on Mother's Day. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes sounds very different um, than most other books because as you read him, the writer of Ecclesiastes, this is what he genuinely sounds like. It's what he generally sounds like. Life absolutely stinks and then you die. So that's pretty much what he says. But today, he's, we're going to get a little ray of hope and more than just a little ray of hope. So let me pray and then we will uh, jump in to a, a hopeful, the first hopeful statement that he's made in the whole book. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the celebration that is in the air. And uh, we pray that we would see you as the one who gives the good gift of mothers and you as the one who sustains the wonderful mothers uh, in our midst. And we just pray that you would speak to us today as we look at your word. Speak words of life to us. Give us hope. Lord, we pray that your word would help us to make sense of all of our lives in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of perplexing circumstances, in the midst of longings unfulfilled. Um, Lord, in, in the midst of suffering and various things, we pray, make it all make sense by revealing yourself and your son to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me give you a little background because this is the third time we've, third message from this book. Uh, the author's name is, well, he sounds like Solomon, but he never calls himself Solomon. He calls himself uh, Koheleth is the Hebrew word. It means preacher or gatherer or assembler, teacher. That's what he calls himself in this book. And what he does is he describes that his pursuit for the meaning of life. And so he starts off pursuing wisdom. And uh, what he says is when I look around at life under the sun, it looks like everything just happens over and over and over and there's no meaning to it. And he looks at the sun coming up and sun coming down, nothing really changes. Generation after generation, nothing really changes. And so he says, all my search of, uh, for meaning and wisdom left me empty. And uh, then he pursues pleasure. And he pursues every pleasure imaginable. He's the king. He's the wisest, wealthiest guy to have lived in Jerusalem at this point, he says, king of Israel. And uh, so he pursues it all. Uh, he, he has tremendous amounts of money. He has houses. Uh, he has gardens. He has vineyards. Um, he has uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is a lady that's not your wife, but you have sex with her anyway. So he has a thousand uh, women that he sleeps with. He has uh, live music whenever he wants it. I mean, he is just like the ultimate guy who has everything. Um, Philip Ryken in his commentary, which we're providing out at the resource center, if you're interested, this is his description. He says, wine, women, and song, and those are three things he said he pursued with a fury. Wine, women, and song. The Solomon of Ecclesiastes had it all. Today, his face would be on the cover of Fortune magazine in the annual issue of the wealthiest men in the world. His home would be featured in a photo spread with architectural digest, the interior and exterior, from the wine cellar to the lavish gardens. Pop stars would sing at his birthday party supermodels would dangle from his arms. So that's the guy. That's translating him in today. And so he says, with all that stuff, I was empty. And life was meaningless. And I couldn't find real joy and happiness. So he goes through all these tests, testing wisdom, testing pleasure. And now in verse 12, we're going to read a, a section of scripture and then talk about it, then read another one and discuss that. Um, we're probably not going to discuss it. I'm just going to talk, but, uh, but you can discuss in your mind or grab me afterwards and discuss. So this is what he says, beginning in verse 12. This is his next study. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And that I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For 
of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, check that last verse. All that is done under the sun. So all of his study has been life under the sun. He keeps saying that, under the sun, under the sun. It's a, it's a literary technique. He's repeating it to give us this perspective. What I'm talking about is life without God. What I'm talking about is just looking around at life under the sun and giving you a human, earthly, some might call it a secular perspective, a view of life without God. And this is what I'm coming up with when I'm looking. So he's talking about life under the sun, not life over the sun or above the sun, which would be God's perspective, uh, spatially sort of speaking. And this is what he says in this most recent test he took that I just read to you, is he says that wisdom is better than folly, sort of. Wisdom is better than folly, sort of. Um, here's his point. He says, no one is going to know more than me. Verse 12, I'm the king. Whoever comes after me isn't going to explore more and do more and know more than me. So he's kind of stating his case that what he's experienced and what he observes is definitive. And then he says this in verse 13, I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he said, speaking of human wisdom, speaking of earthly wisdom, speaking of natural wisdom, uh, it's better to be a fool. It's better to be wise than a fool. And here's why. Because a wise person has light and and a wise person can see and a fool is like a blind person. So what's the problem with, in this picture, being a fool? Why is he calling a fool a blind? He's not mocking the physical blind. He's making a point that a fool can't see. So if you walk in the dark, what happens? You ever walk in, walked in the dark, walked into your, if you have kids, walked into your kid's bedroom in the middle of the night, there's toys on the floor, you're stepping on stuff. You step on stuff when you walk in the dark. You trip over stuff. You bump into stuff. So it's better to be wise. At least you sort of can see where you're going. And there's an advantage to that, he says. So wisdom is better because you have knowledge, you have an awareness. Um, Fools are prone to bump into things. But this is where the sort of comes in. Wisdom is better than folly, sort of. Look at verse 14 with me. um, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Look at verse 16. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance saying that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Now catch this, how the wise dies just like the fool. So he's saying earthly wisdom has some benefit, but listen, everybody dies. I love the way Doug Wilson, we have his book out at the resource center as well. I love the way Doug Wilson says this in a way to catch our attention a bit. He says, the wise man, no less than the fool, will at some point quietly assume room temperature. The wise person, just like the fool, at some point, everybody assumes room temperature. And uh, so he's saying, look, what does it really matter? You're just going to die at the end of it all. There's, there's no remembrance. He goes on to says, say that. He's repeated this before. He's repeating it not because he's an old man and he forgets like I do. My kids are always, oh, you've already told us that or we've heard that joke. Um, and, of course, they just laugh uproariously because it gets funny the more times you hear it. But um, it's, he's not just an old guy who forgets what he's saying. This is God reminding us. And so he says, there's no enduring memory of you. He says, you're going to die. Everybody that you know is going to die. And once everybody that knew you dies, nobody remembers you. That's what he says. So what's the use of it all? This is his point. And so is this mildly discouraging? Uh, Is this mildly concerning to him? Uh, I think it's a lot more. Look at verse 17. So I hated life because what I had done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So I hated life. I looked at this and I said, there's no benefit. I've labored to seek wisdom. I've studied wisdom. I've sought to know everything. In chapter one, he says, I tried to figure out everything on the planet. I tried to be a living encyclopedia. We don't really have, we don't have those anymore. It's bad illustration. I sought to be walking Wikipedia. That's what I sought to be. I sought to know the sum of all knowledge. And why? I'm just going to die. And so when he realizes that, he hates his life. So he's not just some depressed guy. 
uh, he's actually a very brilliant guy because he looks around at all of life and draws the natural conclusions that anyone who considers life would draw. It all comes to an end. You're still going to die, is what he says. So the first point he makes here, and uh, on this joyous Mother's Day, we're getting there, hang on. First point he makes is that wisdom is better than folly, sort of. The second point he makes is that working to acquire stuff is meaningless. Working to acquire stuff is meaningless, and he had tons of stuff. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil, that means work, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Okay, so he's saying working hard and applying my heart and gaining and acquiring stuff, it's meaningless. That's what he says. Now, why is it meaningless? Because you're going to have to pass it on and you can't take it with you. There's an oft-quoted, semi-trite preacher saying that goes like this, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. It's a bit trite, but you get the point, right? I've never seen a hearse, that's what you have a casket in, carrying a U-Haul behind it. Now, I actually heard or read a guy who said, I'm renting a hearse and I'm renting a U-Haul and I'm driving slowly in front of my pastor's house so that he will never use that illustration again, that I've never seen a hearse pulling U-Haul, but I've never used it. So uh, there it is. But he's saying you cannot take it with you. You don't take your goods and your possessions to the grave with you. They bury you and you are alone and everything you have, you leave behind. How much will you leave your heirs? All of it. You'll leave whatever you have, except maybe the suit that they bury you in, if that's the way you go. Um, So it's everything left. And so he looks at that and he says, here's what's concerning about that. The person I leave myself stuff to may be a fool. They may be wise, but they may not. So I worked so hard. And he says he has houses and gardens and servants. And he's got this kingdom, this massive kingdom. I gave my life for this stuff. A, I found no meaning in it, and B, I'm going to give it over to my son, uh, who may or may not do well, or he may die quickly, and it goes to his heir. And so uh, the reality is it may go to a fool, and he says, here's what's a, a grievous evil. It may go to someone that did not toil for it. So someone that did not toil for it gets all this inheritance and wastes it, and it goes away. And so what is his response To all of this thought, verse 20, I gave my heart to despair. I just gave up. I said, I'm despairing of my very life. What do you get? Verse 22, what has a man from all his toil and striving of heart? So it's not just physical work, but it's the heart striving that goes into it as well with which he toils beneath the sun. Now, again, he's saying this over and over. He's talking beneath the sun. He's talking life without God. Without God, what do you have for all of your work? You have nothing. And man, does he end up discouraged? Verse 23. Again, this is not a coffee cup verse uh, that, we get, that you get at the Christian bookstore or whatever. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity which is a great case where don't pull things out of context because if that's all you got, you would be hopeless. He says, all of his days, just filled with sorrow. His work is a vexation. That means something that's frustrating, even tormenting. Work torments me, and even in the night, I cannot rest. So even during the night, with all this stuff, all this pleasure, all that he has, I can't sleep. I got insomnia worrying about my stuff which I'm laboring for, which is bringing me no joy whatsoever, which I will only pass on to a fool who did not work for it, and he'll squander it all. Now, it's not just that this guy needs a vacation. 
<laughs> he's a little depressed. Send him on a fishing trip, hunting trip, day spa. I don't know. This is not, this is not the issue. He's not just a depressed guy. He's an extremely honest and insightful and wise guy who's adding it all up. And saying the American dream adds up to zero because in the end, there's nothing of substance really to it. So do you see what he's doing? He's leading us to a point. He's from chapter one, he's leading us to a point. He's saying, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, but, and he's about to say this. So it's not this, it's not wisdom, it's not pleasure, it's not possessions, it's not power, it's not owning stuff, it's not wine, women, and song, which he chased. It's not being wise instead of foolish, because what does that get you? It's not amassing great things because you can't take it with you and you've got to pass that on to a fool, maybe a fool. So it's none of that. Well, what is it? And that's what he tells us next. And here's Solomon, uh, if he's in, indeed the guy who wrote this. Here's, here's the author of Ecclesiastes for 41 verses. This is the third sermon. We're to the 41st verse of the book right now. He has been a worm in the dirt, just under the dirt, under it all. But here's the glory. Solomon is about to peek his little wormy head up and he's about to give us a ray of hope. And here's the hope that there is joy available and it comes from God. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. It's the first time he's mentioned enjoyment. Find his enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Do you see the point? Now he is not talking about life under the sun. This is the first positive statement that he is is making. He's saying life under the sun is utterly empty, but with God, there can be enjoyment. How can you even enjoy your eating and your drinking and your toil apart from God? What he's saying is that the enjoyment of life is a gift. It's not found in chasing pleasure. You don't aim at pleasure and find joy, is what he's saying. Because you can't gather joy from pleasure. You can't gather joy from wisdom. You can't gather joy from stuff. You can't go pursue things and get joy. Because joy is a gift from God. Enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Martin Luther said that these verses explain everything that has been said already in Ecclesiastes, and they explain everything that comes after. This is such a key to understanding the the book, because what he's saying is, here's what he's saying. We get all these gifts in life. All the gifts we receive um, are from God. We receive gifts from God, but the ability to enjoy those gifts, that's a gift as well. Let me see if I can say that a little bit more clearly. He's saying, we don't find joy in stuff that God gives us alone. So God provides all these things for us, including food, drink, and work. God provides all these things for us, and that's a gift. But there's another gift, and that's the gift of enjoying the gifts that he has provided, and they come separately. What he's saying is, if you want joy in life, it's not just the gifts but you've got to have the gift of enjoyment of things. He's saying that batteries are not included. That's literally what he's saying. Have you ever bought your child a gift at Christmas or uh, for a birthday or some other thing? Everybody's so excited and you open up and you pull it out and the toy's like this, it does nothing. And you realize, oh, we don't have batteries. This thing's not going to come to life. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do. Mom, dad, where's the batteries? Uh, we don't have any batteries. And how discouraging is that? And I want to honor my wife on Mother's Day. My wife has bought, so we've got this drawer full of batteries. I mean, seriously, at my house, there are times when I think we could have had 100 batteries in this drawer. We have single A, double A, we have D, we even have E, F, and G batteries. We have batteries that you don't even, have not even heard. I have batteries you've yet to hear of at my house. So I made an open invitation in the first service as a pastor that cares for you. If you ever need a battery, you stop by our house. I promise, not a car battery, but those little batteries. 
I promise you my wife has taken care of you. Proverbs 31, she's got us covered on the battery front. So we probably ruined some kid's birthday early on. I don't remember. At that point, she said, we'll never have a tear because batteries are always included at our house. So the illustration doesn't work because of my wonderful wife, but you get the point. The illustration works for all of us. The batteries come separate. So you don't find joy in life by just having gifts. You have to see who those gifts come from and you have to appreciate him. The, the, the enjoyment is a gift from God is what he said. This is, I saw the ability to enjoy your eat, drink and toil, your ability to find enjoyment. Verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. So are we chasing or are we receiving? Are we pursuing what we want? Are we acknowledging the one who provides? Listen, we have gifts all around us. The gathering here today, this is a gift. You know how many people in the history of the world have not had the freedom just to be together as we are here today? We are free. There is no fear that anybody's going to walk in that back door and arrest us for worshiping Jesus here today. We have tremendous freedom. And that is an absolute gift. We have life. Another day of life. We woke up. Another day of life today. We have health. If you're here, you at least have relative health. At least relative health. I mean, if you didn't have health at all, you'd be dead. Or you'd be in a hospital bed somewhere today. But we at least have relative health, don't we, today? What a gift. We have the Bible. If you look at church history from the time of Jesus, three quarters roughly, this is really rough, But three-quarters of the time since Jesus, people have not had a Bible. There's no printing press. There was illiteracy. There's people today on the planet that do not have a Bible. We've got a Bible in our lap or on your little smarty pants phone or whatever you've got. Uh, Your iPad here today, and I have it too. I'm not mocking you. But your iPad, whatever you have, we've all got multiple Bibles we can click. I can actually click. You can go to a website and click and read multiple translations of any verse you want to read. We have the gift of the Bible. We have salvation. We have the gift of Jesus, the ultimate gift. We have a church and family and friends, all these gifts. We have moms. Moms, thank God for moms. We have jobs. And if you don't have a job, you at least live in a culture where there are plenty of opportunities for jobs. Now, there's less than there may have been five, ten years ago, but still there's jobs. We don't live in a place where there's no way to earn a living. We have diversions. We have recreations. We have possessions. We have houses. You know, all that Solomon says, I was thinking about this, all that Solomon says about, I've got all these things. I have multiple houses and gardens. Do you know that if Solomon walked into your small, dinky, little efficiency apartment, if that's where you live, He'd be blown away. It'd be far more than he had because you've got electricity and you've got running water and you've got a toilet and we've got refrigeration for our food. I mean, our little, the smallest dwelling we can imagine, maybe an efficiency apartment, studio apartment, whatever they're called there, the small, little small apartment, that's way more than what he would have had. We have housing, we have transportation, we have food, we have art. A readily accessible beauty, beautiful art, readily accessible to us. We have marriage, we have love, we have sexual intimacy, we have friendship, we have gifts galore. But here's the here's the key: it's not just the gifts; it's the ability to enjoy the gifts. <laughs> it's the ability to enjoy God in the gifts that He provides, and that's what Solomon says. That's a gift. That's not what I've had. I've chased after all of this stuff, <coughs> excuse me, and I have not seen it and appreciated the gift. Look, look at the contrast. Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So where does wisdom come from? It's a gift. Where does knowledge and joy come from? It's a gift. Wisdom is a gift. Now look back at 1.16. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me. I applied my heart to know wisdom. And he said, ultimately, it was a striving after wind. He uses this word vanity. It was empty. I couldn't chase it down. I couldn't grab it. 
So do you see the comparison? I acquired, that equaled meaninglessness to him. But in verse 26, he gives, that's joy. The giving, it's, it's a gift. He's been looking for life under the sun, and he's come up with a zero. He's come up with empty hands, and now he's looking at life above the sun as a gift of God, and he's making a radical conclusion that joy in life comes from God. It's grace. It's a gift. You know, we've never, since we started the church, we've never changed our logo, and I don't know, maybe it's outdated now. But the concept is not outdated. It's a gift. That's our logo. It's a present. We said, how can we, why do you depict grace? And this artist said, how about a gift? That's grace. Yes. So it's a gift that God gives us, but it's a gift that God also gives batteries so that the gift works. You got to have the batteries or you don't enjoy the gift. That too is from the Lord. Grace is the basis of everything because of the work of Christ. For us who are Christians, for we who are Christians, it's the work of Jesus that gives meaning to our life. That We're separated from God because of our sin naturally. And Jesus gives his life and dies for our sins in our place, taking the punishment that was due us. And then he's buried and he's raised to new life, defeating the power of sin, the power of death. And he gives eternal life, which is a new kind of life. He sends his spirit inside of us to live in us. So Jesus gives us this brand new way of living. And this, not just this brand new way of living, but here's what's key. This brand new way of seeing. That we begin to see life above the sun. And rather than below the sun where there is no hope and there is no real meaning and you can chase all day long wine, women, song, and then some and end up at the end of the day empty. Everything changes in Jesus Christ. And so there's two ways to look at life. I can't even count how many times. I don't know if it's eight times, ten times so far in this book. He's talked about life under the sun or life under the heavens. So there's life under the sun and life under the sun is... Meaning ends to meaninglessness. But there's another life, and look what he says in verse 24. He's been saying, I saw life under the sun. In verse 24, he says, I saw that this enjoyment in life is from the hand of God. So there's two ways to look at life. Under the sun, just naturally. And then the other way to look at life is from the hand of God. And this is so important. Are we looking under the sun? Or are we looking from the hand of God? Life is what I can go get and make happen. Life is grace. Life is a gift. Because with one, we have the power and the gift to enjoy life. And he's really saying there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work and in his toil. Now, he's, some people say that's kind of cynical. Well, you got nothing more. You might as well eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. The Bible says that elsewhere. But he's not saying that. I don't think he's saying that because he goes on and says, this is enjoyment from God. He's saying, when he says there's nothing better, he's saying that life is really meant to be enjoyed in God. Our best life in the Bible is not now. It's in the future when we see Jesus in glory and we're in heaven in a sin-free world. That's our best life. But there's a life now that is to be enjoyed by grace. It's not all just for later. The Holy Spirit is called the down payment. We've got the down payment on eternal joy and meaning and enjoyment of life right now. And that's what he's saying. It's found as a gift in God. So here's an example. He says... There's nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Ecclesiastes says that I pursued eating and drinking and toil and I despaired of life. But now he's saying that's under the sun. From the hand of God, the simplest thing like eating and drinking, we can find life. The simplest thing like toil is not drudgery. We can find enjoyment even in our toil. There's joy in the regular stuff of life. Look what he says. Then in our eating, he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, eating and drinking can be a phrase for celebrating, partying. So there's real joy in partying, so to speak, if you see the hand of God in that. I'm not talking about drunkenness when I say party. I'm talking about enjoying God in life. So there's a, there's a place for that. 
And he says, we can receive that from the God, from God. And in our toil, we can receive joy as well, but it can mean celebration. But I think because he ties it to toil, it just means regular life. I think he's he's picking the normal stuff of life. If we were to say, what's the most uh, bland stuff of your life? Most people say, well, like eating, drinking, and going to work. I mean, that's just kind of the basics. And he's saying, you pick the basics of your life, and you can find enjoyment in those if you see them as a gift from God. So what he's saying, let's break these down. I'm going to at least talk some about eating and drinking uh, meals, and then I want to talk about toil a little bit. Meals are not, eating and drinking is not just something to cram in your mouth and to fuel up like going to the gas pump or something. Well, the car needs some gas, and the body needs some fuel, and so you just meaninglessly eat. We, we mindlessly eat a lot. That's actually some of our problem. We mindlessly eat, uh, for sure. We mindlessly overeat as well, but we mindlessly eat, don't we? So we, we just drive through. Man, I'm not thinking about it at all. I can drive, talk on the cell phone, play sports talk radio, and eat all at the same time. Steer with my knees. I mean, the whole deal. That No, I don't do that. I do not do, not do that. Children, do not try that at home. Um, but the, we just eat and drive and do a much. Don't even think about it. It's a working lunch. It's a working dinner. I'm drinking my coffee on the way to work. That's my breakfast or whatever it is. So we just mindlessly. Quick, eat fast. We've got to get the kids to practice. Wolf it down. Hurry, hurry, take it in the car. Just, just put it in, take it in the car. Let's go, we're going. So we just don't think much about like eating at the hand of God. We don't even have time to think about our food oftentimes, much less the hand of God in it. But our in drink, eating and drinking is an opportunity to enjoy God. That's what he's saying here. It's an opportunity to have enjoyment. Let me address the moms for a minute. Do you ever think about that? Assuming that you cook. Now, some families, the... Um, the dad does a lot of the cooking, and that may be your family. But a lot of families, that's not our family. My kids would be extremely malnourished if that was the case. But uh, that would be a punishment upon them. But, uh, but that's normally the pattern, typically. So let's say you cook, moms, uh, for your family. Do you ever think of it that way? I mean, Solomon talks about repetitive things, like the sun coming up and the sun coming down, and work. He says work is like that. It's repetitive. And so one of the things that's meaning can be meaningless drudgery for you as a mom can be preparing meals, right? Especially if you have little kids. If you have a little kid or little kids, I mean, the high chair, you haven't even cleaned the high chair. You haven't even dealt with the droppings, the leftovers from the high chair that are on the floor and the dishes, which are now in the sink, before you're already preparing for the next meal. We're not even completely done with the setting of the first meal and the dishes aren't even done and everything's not fixed up nice and tidy if you have little kids and now we're on to dinner. It's the next thing. It's like a revolving cycle. I can't even get done with one before I'm to the next. That's how it can feel like I'm just going and going and it's just nothing happens. Well, what do you mean you're hungry? We ate yesterday. (laughs) What do you mean you want dinner? We had dinner last week. I mean, it just goes on and on. And if you have a under-the-sun point of view, that can feel pretty meaningless. That can feel like we're just surviving. But the hand of God view is very different. Because the hand from the hand of God view, he says that we can eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil and that this is from the hand of God. And apart from him, who can eat and find enjoyment? So there's this sort of hidden promise here that it's possible for a meal to be an opportunity to first of all savor the gift of the food but batteries included would be to savor the giver of the food and to enjoy the god who provided the food that's the toy that's the batteries included and that's possible is what he says so what he's saying is when you are preparing a meal you're not just taking ingredients and sort of throwing them together and slopping something out there so that we can just get this over with and get to the next thing. Now, I understand sometimes we have to eat on the run. I'm not criticizing that, but I'm talking about a lifestyle here. I'm not talking about on occasion or whatever. Lifestyle. 
You're taking the ingredients, you're putting something together, you're fashioning something so that, so that the family and those you might be extending hospitality to or whomever else can sit at the table and savor the food and more importantly, savor the God that provides the food and get this, even provides the taste buds to enjoy the food to begin with. And so this is a very, very lofty view that God gives to us. Under the sun, under the sun, we might as well be animals at a feeding trough. And if you have junior high boys, that's probably what it looks like at times. And I understand that. But it's not animals at a feeding trough. It's those created and redeemed by God who can take the simplest activity of life and say, it's not drudgery, it's not meaninglessness, it's not empty, it's not just tiding me over till breakfast in the morning, it's not I'm just famished, i got to eat something. It is enjoyment. It can be an act of enjoyment. What greater gift, he says, than we find enjoyment, even in our eating and drinking. And God gives that enjoyment not only through the senses, not only through the experience and the fellowship and the food, but through the mind and the heart that are open to see God. The blind person, remember, the fool, the blind person can't ultimately see what God has provided. The spiritually dead person does not see the gifts of God, but neither do they enjoy the gifts of God. The person who has new spiritual life can see the gifts of God all around us. I mean, it's listed a bunch of them that are in the room. The freedom, the Bible, the salvation, the people, the hell, all that, uh, the health, all that. There's, there's freedom all around us. There's grace, there's gifts, there's the care of God, but we can also enjoy that. Because of grace. This week, I had an opportunity. My wife and I, we, some friends had us over um, for dinner. And it was a, a bit of an unusual situation as I thought about it. I wasn't thinking about this passage at the time. But afterwards, I did. Because this person that had us over, over grilled uh, steaks. They were really well-marinated, unusually good-tasting steaks. And I'll leave it at that because I'm hungry. And uh, this will be a distraction. But... Um, so during the meal, it's a very nice meal, um, several people at the dinner were saying, wow, this is really good. Man, this is so, thank you for preparing this. Hey, what, what is the secret? What's the seasoning? Or how did you marinate it? Or, uh, oh, it's so good. It, and there was discussion. There was laughter. There was eating and drinking and laughter. And there was fun and, and some of this kind of stuff. And I just thought about it afterward. I thought, now, every meal is not steak. I don't eat steak all the time. I, I love it, but I rarely eat it. Obviously, it's expensive. Can't eat it every day. But I thought this concept should be the way we view our eating and drinking. There is a gratitude. There is a joy. There is a God. You provided cattle for such a purpose as this with, um, with due respect to the vegetarians among us. Um, you provided this as a choice gift. And uh, that night he provided someone else to, uh, to cook it as well. But Lord, thank you for all that you give us. And in the enjoyment of life is a gift. Now, I understand that I'm not trying to paint some lofty, unrealistic vision that every time we eat needs to be a spiritual revival and renewal. And all the kids at the table, it's just dancing and singing. I've never been so happy and God is alive. And I'm not saying every meal is like that, but do you get the point? He's saying even the mundane, when we have a from the hand of God view is filled with meaning. Even the mundane, when the gift of God and the gift of enjoyment from God, when it's God has provided and he's provided batteries included to enjoy it, to taste it. The Bible even says that taste and see that the Lord is good. And the concern is that some of us, myself, we just don't have very alive taste buds. We're just kind of running through life and it feels pretty barren and pretty empty and pretty meaningless and pretty wearying. And there may be reasons for that, but one of them might be that we're just looking in the life under the sun and just living there. We're not looking at the gift of God and we're not looking at the enjoyment that he provides for all of, a, all of us. Under the sun, um, the next thing he moves to is life um, as from the hand of God of toil. He talks about eating and drinking and then he says toil. 
I saw this was from the hand of God. Apart from God, apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? He's actually in this passage saying that our toil, our work, that there can be joy in that. Now, there's challenges in our work always, but there is always joy in that. I want to say something to the mothers again. Um, The author of Ecclesiastes numbers of times says there is repetition in work and repetition uh, equals meaninglessness. It's boring monotony. It's empty monotony. It's the hamster on a wheel. It's a treadmill where you go nowhere. That's what he says life is like. And if you're a mother, um, I'm going to talk to just for a moment. If you have young kids, which I referred to earlier, but if you have young kids, uh, which we don't, our kids are older, but if you have young kids, then it can feel like your day is very much that, just repetitive, repetitive. Don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I don't feel like I'm making any progress. It's the same thing as yesterday. And really, the day cannot look like we're taking the world by storm. I'm just pulsating with meaning today. I'm ready to do a positive thinking seminar. You know, (laughs) that's not you. You're like, I'm trying to survive. If I can make it until your father gets home, if I can just survive, (laughs) that's what it feels like on some days, especially if you have... uh, multiple kids. It can really feel that way. And so this kind of meaninglessness thing can lead to survival. But that largely, and I understand that sentiment, and it's an understandable that it could feel that way, but that sense of living, everybody can have a day like that. But if that's the lifestyle, that's viewing motherhood from under the sun. I really believe that. I'm not here to beat up on anybody. I'm here to bring, bring hope, really. But that is life under the sun. Life above the sun recognizes the hand of God, and we start with the hand of God in the children themselves. All work is a gift for us. It's a gift from God. If you're in the marketplace or in the home, whatever, any of us do, work is a gift from God. But the Bible says specifically that children are a gift from God. Psalm 127 says, children are an inheritance from the Lord. What's an inheritance? Something that's passed on to you, that's given to you, that's a gift. It's, it's a treasure, It's something you didn't earn. It's something that was given to you. And the Bible says that children are a heritage or an inheritance. They are a gift. They are a treasure. Now, sometimes the gift is wrapped up in whining and crying, but it is a gift, God says. Children are a gift to us, and raising them is a gift as well. But here's what Solomon would say. It's not just that children are a gift, but the ability to enjoy the gift and to enjoy the calling and to enjoy the toil, that's a gift as well. And so often I think we get Psalm 127 down. Kids are a gift by faith at points, by faith. And we love you, kids. You'll understand someday what I'm saying and why people are laughing. You'll get that someday. We love you, we love you, we love you. But some days are challenging. And so we get Psalm 127. I don't think we get Ecclesiastes 2 as much, though. That, God, you provided this gift, and I'm dependent upon you and this gift, but I'm also dependent on the gift to have faith, to trust you, to have joy in the midst of my calling. And that's not just for moms. That's for anybody who works in the marketplace, whatever, any student, if you're in school, it's the same thing. There is to be a joy by, from God. There can be an enjoyment in the toil of homework and studies and schoolwork as well. And that's a, that, well, that's a miracle, you say. Well, yes, that's, it's a gift. It's grace. God can give that. So we see the gift, the children, and then we see that God has provided in this verse the batteries to enjoy the gift as well. But there's something else that Ecclesiastes says. I think, that, I think that could apply to younger moms. But there's something else he says that I think can apply to moms with kids who are older. As your kids get older, and there's some in the room, you have um, you know, maybe high school kids or college kids or kids that are out of the house, kids that are married. As children get older, sometimes what happens is we can look at our kids, we can look and see where they are, and we love them, but... Maybe when we see the condition of their life, the choices they're making, sometimes this can happen in any family. Um, Kids grow up, kids find their way along the way sometimes, and sometimes they can make choices, directions. Maybe they're not, we don't, we're not real happy. We're not overwhelmed with joy when we see the condition of their lives. 
And by the way, we should first of all realize that when our kids see us as parents, they're not always overwhelmed with joy by the condition of our lives as well. So let's start, let's start there and say, the problem's not always I wish they would change. Maybe it's me. But sometimes we can look at that. And uh, I, think, I think Solomon has a tremendous application for when we look and things aren't the way we would like them to be. And I think here's the application. Solomon says that I did all this stuff. He talks about the great works that I did. I built all this stuff. Uh, houses, vineyards, gardens. He uh, developed and oversaw the building of a tremendous empire in the kingdom. And here's what he said. When I looked at all the stuff I accomplished, it was utter meaninglessness. A complete lack of joy. <clears throat> it, was, it was like chasing wind. Wispy, unable to grab it, can't get a hold of it, not substantive, didn't fill me up, did nothing for me. That's what he says when I looked at my accomplishments. Here's under the sun, looks at our accomplishments, what we see as our accomplishments. It looks at the conditions of things around us and it makes an assessment of them and then derives joy or lack of joy from what we see. That's life under the sun. If you look at the way you, uh, your children are, or your job is, or what you've accomplished in your life, in your job, what you've amassed, what possessions you have, how much savings you have. If you look at all the stuff that's out there, there are times when we will find, or really always, ultimately, we will find that there's no joy in attaching my heart to the conditions of others. That There's ultimately not a joy in that. Now, I know that the Proverbs say, and I'm not d- disregarding this or saying that Ecclesiastes um, says something the opposite. I know that the Proverbs, there's numbers of Proverbs that, if I could summarize them, insta- basically say this. That if the kids are godly, mom and dad will be happy. Basically, they say that. There's numbers of places that says that. But we need to realize that the Proverbs are observations about life. They're not categorical statements that you derive entire life philosophies out of. They are observations of life is all that they are. And so generally speaking, that is the case, but it's not a definitive statement as if the opposite were true. So if the kids aren't doing well, then mom and dad are consigned to a life of misery. Where's the gospel in that? Where's the hope in that? So the opposite is not true. It is not true. And I think that Solomon builds the greatest case possible that when you invest all your life into something or someone, what is before you cannot be where you derive your joy. For him, there's many great things. So even if they're great, even if your job is incredible, even if your kids are incredible, Still, we don't derive our joy. It's from the hand of God. Apart from God, who can have any enjoyment at all? We look to the hand of God who gives children and is responsible for them and is responsible to give joy to us in our uh, toil. And we must look and say, if, it's, if they are from the hand of God, then they, how they end up is from the hand of God Ultimately, the matter is not concluded. Here's a key, key truth, I believe. We are not to draw conclusions prematurely about our children. And I don't care if they're 18 months old or 18 years old. We do not draw premature conclusions about them as if nothing could change. That's life under the sun. If you don't know God, that's all you're left with. But if we know God, we do not draw premature conclusions about our kids, whether they're 18 months old, 18 years old, 28 years old, 48 years old. Because from the hand of God, that he is our trust. And God works in glorious and wonderful ways. So we don't draw premature conclusions, and then we don't attach our heart and our joy to those premature conclusions. That's under the sun. We attach our heart to God, the giver of the children, and the one who enables us to enjoy the task of parenting and enjoy the toil, even during the difficulties of life. And we can find joy in that because our joy is tied to God and to his work. God, open our eyes to see your hand at work. 
That is the great hope. So there can be, I think, tremendous, I think God's design is that there's tremendous satisfaction um, in motherhood. Should be tremendous satisfaction in that calling when we exercise that calling and see it from the hand of God rather than life under the sun. When we're dependent, when we're thankful for the gift, and when we're thankful for the giver, we can enjoy the task. When we're thankful that God is at work in ways that we can't see. The hand of God is usually invisible. And there's times where we see dramatic things happen. The hand of God is usually, uh, is, is usually invisible. What does that mean? You cannot see what God is doing in someone else's heart. You do not know, and you have not seen the end of the matter. There is an author writing a story, and he is good, and he is glorious, and he is worthy of our trust. And there's life in that. Now, here's the last statement, and we're done. The last statement he makes here, if we don't have a context for this, or if we don't consider some other verses in the Bible, I think can be discouraging, to be honest. Verse 26, he says, To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the one who pleases him, he gives us this thing. So he gives us these things. So here's the, here's the tricky part of this. That sounds like, to us, that sounds like something we earn, doesn't it? It sounds like if I please God and I'm good enough, if my behavior is good enough, if I'm moral enough, then God will give me wisdom and knowledge and he'll give me joy and all that kind of, uh, kind of a thing. But we have to ask, what does the Bible say pleases God ultimately? I think Hebrews eleven six is a verse I would look at and say, this tells us what pleases God. Verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith. What pleases God? Faith. That's hand of God. Under the sun's not faith. That's hand of, it's pleases God. Why does faith please God? Because we are looking to him. We are looking outside of ourselves to him. We are recognizing his goodness and his faithfulness. And God is pleased when we look at Jesus, the savior, when we look at God, the giver, when we look at God who gives the ability to enjoy his gifts, God who gives the gifts with batteries included. When we look at God and we trust God and we lean on God, he's pleased because we make much of God and we don't make much of us. When we're looking away from what we've accomplished in Solomon's case, when you're looking away from the power and the wisdom and the pleasure and looking to the hand of God, God is pleased. And to that person who will not trust in the things of this world, life under the sun, but will trust in the giver of the gifts and the one who gives the ability to enjoy the gifts, that person will find joy. So he doesn't say, go get your life all cleaned up, I think, and be a perfect person and then you can have joy. That's hopeless. None of us get there. But it's look to Jesus, the Savior. Look to the hand of God and find enjoyment in your life. I believe that's true for all of us. It's true for the mother with young kids or older kids or whatever. In the, in the repetition of life, in the repetition of what could feel like a drudgery, if we're looking to the hand of God, the experience of many moms I've talked to is you will stumble onto joy. If you're looking at the hand of God, if I'm looking on my job at the hand of God, Ecclesiastes lives by sight. God calls us to live by faith. And faith pleases God. And in the faith of trusting God, we see his hand. We see his gifts. We taste and see. We eat, we drink, we marry, we work, we serve, we recreate. And all of life can be lived understanding the gift of God. Even suffering, while not pleasurable, there can be an underlining joy even in suffering if we see the hand of God. Suffering under the sun is hopeless misery. Suffering under the hand of God who loves us and cares for us and will see us through, there can even be joy. But that joy is found in how we look. Under the sun, hand of God. For there's joy when we see him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. I pray for anyone in the room today that does not know you, that's here this this day, that you would open their eyes to know you and to experience life in you. I pray that they would experience the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. They would look to Jesus to have their sins forgiven. And that this day, this Mother's Day, whether they're a mother or not, would be the day they would remember that they met Christ and had new life in you. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.